44 million households pay rent every month in the United States, and the crisis for renters is growing. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on the show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash The Socialist Program. Brian, there was a really big and I think really important story that was in The New York Times recently called The Rent Revolution is Coming, and I'm really excited to talk with you about it today. Yes, Nicole. And, and for our audience, with just a, a big heads up to everybody, this week I'm traveling And because I'm traveling, the show is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have to make shorter versions of our episode for the Tuesday podcast and the Thursday podcast. The Wednesday night show, Breakthrough News, which is the Thursday podcast, but coming out as a YouTube video every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We're not going to be doing the YouTube video this week. So we'll have three shows, but they're going to be shorter because... Indeed, I'm traveling. Later in the week, we're going to cover the escalating war in Ukraine. We're going to talk more about the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Congress and what Xi Jinping said. We have a lot to cover, but we're going to have to do it in a slightly abbreviated version. And again, thank you to all of our patrons. We can't do the show. We cannot do the show without the support of people who like the show or rely on the show people who subscribe to the show, who do their part and help us cover our costs, they make it possible. So thank you to everyone who is a patron. If you're not a patron, become a patron. Do your part to help this show, to help independent programming get started. Nicole, with that said, I was really struck by the article because I like the headline, the rent revolution is coming. Whenever people talk about a revolution coming in the United States, I think, good. We need a revolution. But when you look at the reasons why a rent revolution is indeed coming in the United States, it's awful. I mean, you have 44 million households having to pay rent, meaning they have no equity and rent is going through the roof and people are starting to fight back. But the problems in housing are becoming so pronounced, millions more people facing the dire crisis of homelessness or So much of their income goes to rent. Anyway, let's get started. I know you saw the article, The Rent Revolution is Coming, really something. Yeah, great point, Brian. I mean, this article, I think, was really, really stark. And I've talked to a number of people in different parts of the country and different parts of the movement who also, I think, were very struck by this. It was the front page of one of the sections of The New York Times last Sunday, It has Tiana Caldwell, the co-founder and board president of the Kansas City Tenants, who I think have become very well known for just, you know, really fighting back with a number of different, really creative, unique tactics. You know, it's a picture of her with her fist up, a huge, beautiful, full-color photo. And I just want to read the very beginning of the piece because I think it's really useful. Again, this is New York Times. The rent revolution is coming, and it starts, quote, Here's a list of places you might imagine seeing an argument over housing policy, a city council meeting, a late-night zoning hearing, 
maybe a ribbon cutting to christen a new affordable housing complex. Instead, there was Quentin Lucas, the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, on a stage dressed as the Pope with half a dozen hecklers in yellow t-shirts berating his new housing plan from the audience in front of him. Mr. Lucas had arrived at the outdoor Starlight Theater on a warm August evening for a cameo appearance in a local production of Sister Act. Just before he walked onto the stage, the demonstrators, who belonged to a group called Casey Tenants, unfurled a banner that read Mayor Lucas Developing Displacement. A pack of uniformed security guards promptly smothered the scene. During the slow procession to the exit gates that followed, members of Casey Tenants chanted, The rent is too damn high, while the audience tried to focus on the mayor slash pope and the dancing nuns. Such is the state of housing in America, where rising costs are flaring into pockets of resistance and rage. Take two-plus years of pandemic-fueled eviction anxiety and spiking home prices, add a growing inflation problem that's being increasingly driven by rising rents, and throw in a long-run affordable housing shortage that cities seem powerless to solve. Add it up, and the 44 million U.S. households who rent a home or apartment have many reasons to be unhappy. That unhappiness extends across the economic spectrum. At one end are renters who aspire to buy a home but have had their dreams dashed by high home prices and now rising mortgage rates. At the other are low-income tenants who make up the bulk of the 11 million households who spend more than half their income on rent. In between is a hollowed-out middle class that's steadily losing ground, although not enough to qualify for much sympathy or help. Brian, there's so much in just these few paragraphs. I mean, first of all, that there is an organization out there like the Casey Tenants who are you know, like I said, really getting creative and deciding, okay, if the mayor's going to dress up like a pope and go play at Sister Act, like we're going to go together and we're going to interrupt that just to make sure that people know what's happening. And of course, you know, reading this with a critical eye, you see the New York Times writing, oh, the, the security guards promptly smothered the scene. Well, it's not that prompt if, as they say, the slow procession to the exit gates, you can hear the tenants chanting the rent is too damn high. It didn't really smother it. But I think the second part here, I mean, the state of housing in America the eviction anxiety, and not just eviction anxiety, but the evictions during two years, two plus years of the pandemic, the home prices that have been spiking well before the pandemic and are continuing to spike and are continuing to just be so incredibly high and totally unaffordable. And then now the inflation problem that's deeply in effect and is raising rents an incredible amount. And then, you know, of course, again, the New York Times writes it as the cities are seem powerless to solve the long-term affordable housing shortage, which is deeply not true. And I'm actually involved in a campaign to bring social housing to Washington, D.C., in the in the city of D.C., where tenants have a lot of rights in D.C. because people have fought for those rights for a very long time, but they don't still have a right to a home and affordable housing in D.C. Very recently, Washington, D.C. was ranked the highest rate of gentrification, the highest rate, because things are changing so fast and there is so little affordable housing. And even again, what, you know, who gets to define the word affordable And it turns out the answer to that is the city. And the city does that with, you know, taking into account all sorts of different incomes in a region. So if you have a very wealthy block and then you've got a very poor block, the quote unquote affordable status is something that most people can't afford. If you've got people who are making six figures around you and, you know, you're taking a percentage of the average income around that to define affordability, then it's not affordable. So There's a bill in the D.C. Council and the state of New York is also fighting for this. There's a lot of advocates in New York fighting for this and in other places as well on this idea of so-called social housing, which essentially means that, you know, it's different from public housing, though the goal of social housing is to have the government own, like, you know, the government would finance the building of these buildings and, you know, making sure that they stay maintained. But instead of, you know, these crazy 
runarounds where your rent, if you're in public housing, like any of the money you pay doesn't go to maintain the building. It goes directly into the city's coffers. And then you've got some complicated, very, you know, red tape sort of bureaucratic system to try to maintain the buildings. But then that never happens. Anybody who's ever been to public housing, I mean, I I can't say everywhere in the country because I haven't been there, but I, I have to assume most places in the country knows you know, these buildings aren't maintained. But in social housing, the residents would be in charge of what happens and the rent would go directly to the maintenance of the building. And there are places in the world where this actually happens. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But in any case, you know, this rent revolution is coming. It's very clear. Yeah, let me jump in, Nicole, because I want to talk about what's actually happening. We're in Washington, D.C., I know you and the Party for Socialism and Liberation in D.C. just hosted this meeting on social housing. Social housing is different from what we know in the United States as the so-called public housing or federally mandated housing or federally paid for housing or city or state housing. And we'll talk about where social housing is a huge success story. But what's going on in Washington, D.C. and has been going on is a class war directed by the banks and the real estate companies, the biggest developers, to drive out working class residents from their historic homes. And because Washington, D.C. was such a majority African-American city, in the 1980s, when I first moved to Washington, D.C., about 75% of the city was African-American. And today, less than 50% of the city is Black meaning that this war against the working class in Washington, D.C. is also and must be categorized as a racist campaign of displacement. And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and families have been driven from Washington, D.C. because the developers and the bankers and the politicians who are in their pocket are only looking at housing from the point of view of how to maximize profits. So if you can drive working class folks out of their homes, make life unlivable using all sorts of tactics, and then take their properties and make them into condominiums or luxury housing for a different part of society, the real estate developers, the landlords, the capitalists, the politicians can make huge bucks. And meanwhile, working class people lose their homes and housing becomes essentially unaffordable. It's not like some thing happened. It wasn't like an act of nature. It wasn't like an act of God. These were the decisions made by politicians working as basically the proxies or puppets of the biggest capitalists who are dominating the housing market. Nationally, as you were mentioning, rents are now 20% higher than they were in 2020. You have the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Reserve Bank, you know, unelected bankers. Nobody knows their names. They're making decisions on monetary policy, meaning driving up the cost of borrowing money, of getting a loan, and as a consequence, interest rates are going higher and higher, and this is designed basically to slow or contract the economy as a way of bringing down inflation. But here you have renters who are paying 20% more just in the last two years. I mean, in the last year, wage increases on average have gone up by 4%. The Federal Reserve talks about the need to cool the labor market, meaning the need to bring wages down. Well, wages are obviously not the problem. If our wages are going up by 4% and rents have gone up 20% in the last two years, 
obviously the driver of inflation are the capitalists. But by using monetary policy to raise interest rates, the entire burden of inflation falls on the shoulders of renters. It falls on the shoulders of the working class in myriad forms, but rent increase is certainly one of them. What we're witnessing is class war. And why is the number of people who are now homeless growing? Because people can't pay the rent. As they said in Kansas City, the rent is too damn high. I'm looking at statistics from the Policy Advice Organization. That's a think tank. There are, according to this organization, 552,830 people who are homeless. Well, that number is really wrong. That number is conservative. That's a low number. According to the New York Times, even in 2020, and this was before the housing crisis got worse, one out of every 10 children in the New York City public school system, one out of every 10, that would be 114,000 kids, are homeless. That means their parents are homeless too, or their mother is homeless. Somebody's homeless. They don't have secure, stable housing. And again, this isn't like some mystery. It's not like some problem that has just like fallen from the skies. This is a consequence of capitalism. And instead of using housing as a way to make profit, what we're demanding here on the socialist program and what other people who are promoting social housing are promoting is the idea that housing should be a human right, not a source of profit. Right. And there are trends that really reflect exactly what you're talking about, Brian. And D.C., like I said, is as it's moving so fast, it's a really good place to look for that, to be able to see how this is happening and why. Looking in some 2022 very up-to-date data at market rate apartment units in Washington, D.C., if you look at the highest level of buildings, like the luxury buildings, those have gone up this year by 9.4%. Like the number of units has gone up, increased by 9.4%. Whereas the class that's either going to be affordable housing or, you know, theoretically affordable housing, that's not as new, that's older, that's not luxury housing, that's actually gone down by 0.1%. Again, so I said it's gone up by 9.4%, the highest class, the luxury class. There's 51,000 units of very luxury apartments in Washington, D.C., 6,632 of those are vacant. 6,000, 6,600 units, just of the luxury units are vacant, whereas there's people sleeping on the street, you know, all over the city. So, you know, very clearly this housing in this system, housing under capitalism, isn't actually built for living in, it's being built for profit. And even more, if the city is building all of these luxury units, assuming people will move into them to make money off of them, they're obviously assuming wrong when, you know, people aren't moving into them because they're too expensive and people don't want to pay that much money or can't pay that much money in many cases. I want to read another piece from The Rent Revolution, this article, because it really relates to what you were saying as well, Brian. So, quote, politically speaking, inflation has only helped. Nationally, rents are now 20 percent higher than they were in early 2020, creating an opportunity for renter-friendly laws to get baked into long-term policy. I'm going to quote here in this article from Tara Raghuvier, a co-founder of Casey Tenants. Quote, people take for granted that rent is always going to go up. There's so little political imagination about what could be different. And now I think that's changing. The rest of the article goes on. During a three-day visit in which I hung around the office and shadowed meetings and protests, Ms. Raghuvier returned repeatedly to an idea that has become a refrain among tenant groups. The hope that growing resentment over housing costs is fostering a broad tenant identity that will inspire a wide range of renters to organize and vote with a shared interest. In the activist nomenclature, this is known as tenants as a class. That's an audacious goal in a country where homeownership is all but defined as success. 
An irony of the nation's housing problem is that it's become so pervasive that it has created as many opportunities for cleavage as it has for coalition. Need has grown faster than resources, making housing policy a prism through which a stealth conflict between the middle class and the truly poor is filtered, unquote. I mean, I think this is such a great point. Like, it's something that so many people need. It's something that everybody needs, but so many people are living with far too many people in their homes, are living where they have a hour, hour and a half, two hour commute to work to not even make enough money to, to deal with all those costs. They're not living somewhere. They're bouncing from house to house. I mean, this is only getting worse. And like the co-founder of Casey Tennant says, I think it's so right. Like rent doesn't have to go up. And in this social housing model, for example, rent wouldn't need to go up. It would be set at a third of your income or 20 to 30 percent of your income. And because it would be mixed income of people living there, you'd be able to apply and move into social housing. And it would be this really great building that you would want to move into. So people of all sorts of incomes would move in and be able to support the costs of running the building. In Austria, in Vienna, the capital city, most people live in social housing. I had an opportunity to go to Austria a couple of years ago. The housing there is beautiful. It's well-kept and it's social housing. That's because at one time, even though Austria is a capitalist country, it had a socialist government and it implemented far-reaching housing reform along the lines of social housing, meaning you don't this is not a requirement of having a socialist revolution. These are achievable goals and housing reform, even under the capitalist system. But of course, the landlords and the bankers and the corrupt politicians make it impossible because they're making so much money. They make it impossible because they won't do it. That's why you need a rent revolution, even to accomplish something that is obviously attainable within the context of the existing social and economic order called capitalism. Austria is capitalist. But Nicole, most people in Vienna are living in social housing. Right. Most people are. And that is also part of what really makes it work. Fully three in five residents in Vienna live in some type of cooperative or locally owned social housing. And in Finland, nearly three quarters of residents are eligible for publicly financed social housing. And by doing this, by building social housing, they've had a, a remarkable downturn in homelessness. They've been able, as you can imagine, you know, this is not a, a crazy equation, right? Like if you provide homes and they're affordable, then you have fewer people without homes because you've provided homes that are affordable. It's, you know, that New York Times piece frames it like, well, cities are just scratching their heads. We have no idea how to do this. Like, no idea how to solve the homelessness problem. Well, I can give you some hints. And, you know, if people are without a home, then that's pretty much the cause. Like, it's in the name. And Sweden, similarly, they took, actually, back in the 60s, the population of Sweden at the time was 8 million, about the size of New York City. And they decided they were going to set a goal of building a million new units. And they had some problems and some setbacks, but they actually did build a million new units in less than a decade. So again, Sweden, capitalist country, can be done. Like, this is not rocket science at all, for lack of a better phrase. It is just you decide to do it and you put the money into it. And then, hey, you have achieved your goals. If your goals are getting rid of homelessness. Nicole, I, I have an idea. What about instead of spending $900 billion next year for missiles, <laughs> battleship groups, B-1 bombers, B-2 bombers for missiles for death and destruction, why not take, let's say, even half of that money? Let's say you took $450 billion and created affordable housing. 
obviously in one year, one year's military budget, half of one year's military budget would basically eradicate homelessness in America and make a huge improvement for the working class. That's why we have to also think about the gargantuan military budget around which, by the way, there's an almost absolute consensus among the bought and paid for corrupt politicians that dominate Congress, that constitute the vast, vast, vast majority of Congress. They'll never cut the military budget because, again, it's part of their job is to keep shoveling our money, our tax dollars over to capitalist corporations who, in the name of national defense, in the name of security, keep taking this money and making extra super profits from the production of arms and weapons and instruments of death and destruction, where obviously the human, the rational, and certainly humanist, not to mention socialist idea here would be to use that money for real security. And real security means to allow people to stay in their homes, to allow them to be in their homes, to allow them to have safety and shelter, to make sure that no one is paying 50% of their income for rent, which so many families are doing right now. And again, these are not sort of natural crises. These are not God-given. They don't even have to exist within the existing capitalist system, because again, we can see Sweden capitalist, Finland capitalist, Austria capitalist. It's U.S. capitalism where the greed and avarice, not to mention corruption of the 1% and their bought and paid for politicians is so institutionalized that nobody, even those in the media who are talking about the need for a rent revolution, seriously consider the obviously achievable alternatives within the existing system. Right. Again, making a rent revolution actually necessary. Right. And, you know, I think your point is very good that if the U.S. didn't spend the nearly, well, by some estimates, if you, you know, really actually include everything that goes into war, you know, over a trillion dollars every year on war making, absolutely, you know, the state of the art housing, education, all of this would be easily affordable. But even, you know, Again, in Washington, D.C., increasingly very wealthy city, the politicians, like you said, are so, you know, controlled by the developers, the wealthy real estate companies, the corporations who are here to profit off of essentially the misery of others. You know, they don't care if people have housing. They want to profit off of these buildings. They want to profit off of these luxury condos. They want to profit off of using land that should be public land. And one example is in Washington, D.C., one of the you know, latest, hottest developments. It's called the Wharf. It's this beautiful waterfront property that used to be a place where you could go and, you know, get a pretty cheap seafood meal out on the dock, like mom and pops just kind of like steaming seafood out on the side. And you could, you know, buy, pick up groceries, you know, otherwise there wasn't much there. Instead of, I don't know, developing that for parks, for people to have green space, instead of doing all the things we would want people to do, The city sold it to a private developer to make money off of it, but the city didn't sell it for any amount of money that would make any sense. They sold it for $1. $1. Now, you know, you could make an argument if the city had sold it for a large amount of money that the developer absolutely can afford, you know, at least they could use that money to actually repair all of the problems in housing around the city, but they didn't even do that. I mean, they also could have, you know, put it into social housing and and built something really nice for people along the waterfront. But again, I just think this really shows the really blatant, blatant corruption, just like you were saying. And you can see essentially that phrase, put your money where your mouth is, right? And clearly they are, their mouth and their money are with the ruling class. 
Capitalism is a form of organized greed. It's a form of legalized corruption. Again, it's not even the landlords and developers and bankers trying to make profits. You could make profits from all kinds of housing. They want to make maximum profits. They want to get top dollar. So here you have in the United States where you have bought and paid for politicians at the congressional level, at the state level, at the city level, because, you know, look at the D.C. council, you know, democratically controlled council in essence, all bought and paid for politicians. But go to the Maryland state legislature or the Virginia state legislature, Virginia and Maryland surround Washington. These are legislatures that are bought and paid for by the capitalists, by the landlords, by the developers. And as a consequence, people need to have a rent revolution or any kind of revolution to get things that are, again, obviously achievable. The reason they're not being achieved is the capitalists don't want profit. They want maximum profit. And that sets up the contradiction. That is the reason. That is the reason that one out of 10 children in New York City, more than 100,000 kids are actually homeless today as they will be tomorrow and the next day. Because under this system, the homeless and people who can't afford rent get to vote every two or four years for some corrupt politician, bought and paid for politician, but they don't have the right to affordable housing. And that, in fact, is what we are fighting for. Thanks, Brian. I mean, yeah, I think this is a very, very important conversation, a very important topic. And we'll, of course, keep coming back to it because we know the rent revolution is coming. And, you know, this is obviously going on in all cities and not even just cities, but pretty much everywhere across the country. Before we go, again, want to just really thank all of our listeners and supporters. And just a reminder that Brian, as we said at the beginning, is traveling this week. So our episodes will be just a little bit shorter, but we're so excited to continue bringing you content. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.